Oh, Shinola, like you're like the, the place. You know. Is that part? So <laughs> you're working with the Shinola people. Yeah, they're uh, you know they're a Detroit brand. Yeah. So that's kind of how we got there. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I that's such a great thing. I have a, a Shinola watch at home. Oh yeah, I cool, love cool. It. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great brand. Good people too. They really like have a great sense. It doesn't feel retro for the sake of being retro. It just feels like they picked the time when stuff was done the right way. Yeah, there's, and a, there's a craftsman quality to it, you know, that's like, um, it's not just hipster for being, like, for hipster's sake, you know. There's a, there's a, yeah. there's almost like an American craftsmanship there that I like, which is part of the reason why I'm there and part of the reason why I, like, attach myself to that project, you know. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, and we should keep in what we were just saying, and I'll tell you why, because... What you just said about Shinola, one could say about your, you and what you do, right? Which is you're an American craftsman and you're not just hip for hip's sake. Like if you do something – I mean that's that – seems oh, I steal that. <laughs> yeah, I mean no. It does feel like in a way the ethos that you've brought to doing what you do be, because um, – I mean I've, I read some old interviews where you talked about why you weren't using a sous vide at a certain time. And you said because sometimes roasting just is – it just tastes better. So even if it's not hipper – you're going to do the thing that's most delicious, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the the technique necessarily. I think I love technique. We're all about technique, but sometimes there are amazing techniques you can do with a spoon and a pat of butter. Um, and it's you know there was a time in gastronomy around the world where technology was king. Uh, you know we're post that by ten years now. Yes. Uh, I usually go against trends. Um, part of my own, you know, my own convictions a little bit, but also, uh, you know, the old ways sometimes are the better ways. Sometimes, not always. Well, yeah, it's a fascinating sort of uh, conversation. And I was uh, about when something is really moving things forward and when it's just new. Sure. And then they're right. So, and in food, especially because certain things are uh, not just time tested, but there's a reason they've been passed down. And then occasionally someone does come along and like, do something in a new and different way. And sure. It's amazing. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting you meant sous vide because I think the, uh, which for those of you who don't know, is a technique where you put something in a bag and then you cook it at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time to reach, uh, usually uh, uh, as the old, old, uh, old school food critics would call fork tender uh, kind of consistency. And then it's maybe roasted to get some caramelization on the outside. Uh, that is... Um, the, 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 the most ridiculous part of that was when I went to a restaurant uh, that's very well known and a chef that I love, but, uh, you know, they were kind of doing a big tasting menu for us and they brought out as a presentation the piece of meat inside the sous vide bag as a presentation at the table, which is as a diner, which is often how I look at things because I eat out a lot. We all eat out a lot. We love food. Uh, just didn't seem very appealing to me to have this, you know, pre-cooked, not caramelized piece of flesh sitting inside a warm plastic bag was not, hot, not, well, a, great, in a, not, way, not a great right? way to finish a meal. But, well, it's a, but in a way, in a way, that's a lot of logical extension of modernism, right? I mean, the whole thing in architecture was to take adornment off. Sure. And you, you stripped it, you get rid of adornment and what you're left with is pure functionality. But food is different, isn't it? The way we relate to food is different. I mean, it's a basic human function, right? And 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 everyone relates to it in a different way. Everyone has a has a association with it in a different way. And uh, like music or like you know any other kind of art form, they're responding to it in a different way. Uh, and it's as as me, the guy that's creating this stuff all the time, you have to react to it. Yeah, for sure. My, yeah. So my my guest today is Andrew Carmelini, who's known um, as really one of the best chefs in in the world and restaurateurs and. Um, has been in New York at the very top of uh, the food game for a long time. And 
Um, oddly, I, I don't think you and I have ever met before, and I'm friends with so many chefs. It's it's uh, odd, but I've eaten in your restaurants forever, and um, and think you're brilliant at what you do. But you mentioned music, and my first question to you, my first official question was going to be that because I want to talk to people who know you well. Mm-hmm. They talk about how important music is in in your life, and what I'm wondering about is how your enthusiasm for an ability with music plays into the way you think about food and restaurants. Because people I spoke to seem to think it's significant in some way. I mean, they're, the analogy I always use, or the process I always use, is that you know, so you in the you in the record business, so you kind of you know understand this process. Uh, and it's also what I'm most jealous of as someone that does what I do. And I look at you know music is that you can you can geek out in the studio for days, hours, months um, about a track, um, you know, about a sound you're trying to create, and uh, you can work on the snare and geek out about the snare and EQ the snare to where it gets the, you know, perfect thing in the mix or, you know, how the bridge is going to connect to the solo, how we're going to do the outro. And it's, once it's done, it's there forever. It's there for, um, you can, you can listen to it 10 years later, you can use it 15 years later. What I do is the complete opposite of that. You know, it's a very human business. The weather affects it. The employees affect it. Uh, my fish delivery coming in on time, uh, and making the right delivery affects it. Uh, people's moods affect it every single day, every single table. Every so it's Whoa. a very it's a very dynamic, organic thing, which is for someone like myself that would love to just work on a you know to make the foie gras terrine or whatever it's the ravioli and be the same ravioli forever for the history of time is always the frustrating part of I guess what I do as it relates to music. You know, I, because you're talking about the ineffable thing and the fact that the the that uh, the food just disappears also, right? The thing you've done that night is sure, done. it's done. But but the emotional reactions that we can have, like the last night we shot Billions this season, mm-hmm. um, we ordered from La Conda Verde. At, sure. We were shooting at Axis Penthouse. And we, um, Mike, who, who works with, with me, one of the producers was like, I think we should do La Conda Verde tonight. And so we got a, a huge order from there and, and um, about 10 of us, Damien, uh, Sat in an Axis penthouse at one in the morning because you guys closed late, like eleven thirty maybe. Sure. And um, ate this food, and you know that experience of eating that pasta um, stays with me as uh, emotionally as part of the experience of wrapping season four of this thing that's been this huge part of my life. Sure, sure, cool. And so, don't you think like there is an, an emotional consonance in a way between what music can do and what um, when we're not using food purely for its utility, are are we also using it for these emotional reasons? And are you conscious of that in what you do? Well, hundred percent. And it's uh, it's like like music. It's good to be to have the audience member in the perfect state to accept, you know, what you're doing. But you know the and certain types of restaurants, you know, destination restaurants, or if you're going to travel, you you know you're going to you're going to go to Copenhagen specifically to go to Noma, or you know in 2002 yes. you're going to specifically drive to Rosas and then get on a gravel road and then go another 15 miles on a gravel road to go to El Bulli, or you know you know back in, back in the day in the early 90s you were going to like take the train to Lyon get in a car and then drive to Saint-Étienne Pierre like whatever that is you're already in an an ideal state to accept you know this emotional so right. kind of challenge as opposed to like La Conde Verde which is a very specific restaurant i really wanted to open up for a very specific reason where you're eating you know people are having breakfast they're having lunch they're having dinner they're grabbing a glass of wine they're there to party with their you know their friends on Friday night they bring clients on Tuesday night so it's a it's a very interesting thing because it's different. 
in that regard. You're saying you don't consider it a destination, even though it's crowded and hard to get a reservation, mm-hmm. you don't consider it a destination place. I mean, it no, was. Not, its first year it was, though. Yeah, it's, it's in all of my restaurants so far, I've always tried to make the mix between a, a neighborhood joint and a little bit of a destination. And so that's why it's very interesting and dynamic because Dutch is a good example. Also, yeah. you'll have a you know, a, a local New Yorker that's there. That's, it's like their Tuesday night regular. And then next to them, you have some gastro tourists from Chicago that really want to know every single thing that's going inside every single dish. And it's just people are there for different reasons, which is part of the beauty of it. How much do you think about that stuff? How much do you think of put yourself in the diner's head? It's, and when did you start doing that as a, as a practice? Uh, well, it's interesting. When I was the chef de cuisine for Danielle at Cafe Baloo yes. in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, after probably about four years, so that's four years of me and my young career as a chef. I was the chef at that restaurant. After I mean, famously so. This was, I, I want to talk. I mean, I have questions about right. this, so famously so. It was like line cooking for 15 years of my life and, and go, going through all the, you know, the rings of, of getting to the chef uh, thing. I, uh, one of the best, most regular customers, uh, who's an art dealer here in New York, uh, walked in the kitchen one day and introduced me because I'd never met him personally because I was, uh, I'm still more of a behind the scenes type person than I am uh, a self-promotion front of type of like person. Front of house. Yeah, it's just not my. I, I, it's just the way I am. And uh, anyway, so he came, he came in the kitchen and he introduced myself. He said, "I love what you do. Like it's why we're here two, three nights a week. I love your food." He goes, "And I love that I can come here on Wednesday and get a lamb seven ways, you know, cooked in a lot of different ways with all these different good things. But really, the thing that brings me back is the ravioli. And I think." As a, I was always a, a diner in like high-end restaurants, especially for, as from a chef point of view. Right. And that made me think about things a little bit different. It's like, oh, like from a diner point of view. Oh, um, that's great. You were so, thinking of it all as a chef. Yeah. And as like a dazzler, wanting to dazzle people, basically, right? Yeah, I want to be razzle-dazzle. Right, I perfect technique thing. And, and blow your mind. Yeah, every single time. And so this was, it was a little bit of a, really a pivot point kind of like how I thought about restaurants and kind of how I wanted to do restaurants, not just as superstar chef. It's named after myself, going for all the stars, even though that's what I was doing. And I was 15 years of my career was that when I went into business for myself, that's a little bit the reason why I am where I am. Yeah, because you, well, it, it's great that you realized, sort of like a, I, I think about this a lot in, in regards to Anthony Mangieri, because mm. I, Anthony's like a hero, a friend of mine and a hero of mine, because he's just going to make, pizza that's his own personal ideal sure and the personal need to express himself that way for himself and he doesn't he doesn't give a shit about what anyone thinks about it which is which is which is great and i love that it's very like um zappa-esque almost kind of like yes. way to like approach it and and uh i i've i've seen him uh previously like really you know tell someone he doesn't really care this is what he does and that's the end of it um, which is, I love that. But but that idea, because what he's delivering, he's like, look, I'm gonna, um, and I'm gonna talk to him on here, talk to him on here soon. I want to talk about it with him. But but there is something about delivering uh, somebody's perfect idea of a pizza or somebody's perfect idea of a perfect pasta. Like the like the pastas at La Conda Verde are. I find it funny that you say it's not a destination because for me, for my partner here, Dave, for my wife, like it's worth. 
it's worth going down. It's worth going to the east side because if you want, you know, arguably the best bowl of pasta in the city, that's where you're going to go to get it. Because what you feel like as the diner is somebody's back there who really gives a shit about this satisfying you. Which feels just, to me well, like that, it's that important just made to my you. day because really what you're saying is the most important thing. And I think that I think any chef really, you know, the the ones you know, the ones you don't know, whether they're crazy, whether on TV, whether you know, whatever the story is, essentially that's the case. Like, uh, you know, they're there, you know, and Thanksgiving, they're not sitting down usually, like dealing with the crazy family. They're in the kitchen, in their own little world, but that's the in the end, that's what you want to do. You want to make people happy. You want to, and it's cliche when I say that. Like it's been said before, but in the end, you want to make them happy by your yeah. own standard. I think though is sure. the thing that separates yeah. people who are are not just trying to have a, a corner mom and pop. Those people also want to make because that's just about making the the diner happy. I I think that there's a, a resonance part of. I've thought about why I'm such good friends with so many chefs, and I think part of it has to do with the similarity in what a certain kind of artist is trying to do. Mm-hmm. with their work, which is like, I want to make my television show to completely satisfy me. Dave and I are doing it to completely entertain and satisfy us. But our, but it's meaningless if it doesn't also, it's, it's totally meaningless if it only satisfies the viewer and I'm miserable making it, right? That's, right. That There's is that, a hellish but... existence only about money. But if, if you're really doing this shit, what you're trying to do is is it, I think, and I want to ask if you fit this, is like bring forth the thing that's in you in as perfect a way as you can in the hope that it's also going to land and be received that way, right? I mean, if 75% of that equation works, it's successful, really, because there's always going to be 25% yes. that's, you know, it's, it, there's haters, there's, you know, someone yes. in a, in a, that's not going to engage you with the way you want to, that's, there's, there's a million variables. But if, yeah, 75%, you're, you're golden. So you're golden. You yeah. feel like you've, it, the 18-hour days are worth it, right? Sure. For that, re- I mean, for that reason. So when did food begin speaking to you in a way that it doesn't exactly to most of us? Like, where were you in your life? Uh, you know, I started this when I was really young, uh, back when a time when it wasn't really very popular. Like how young, like, were you a high school kid when you first realized my, 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 you loved well, food? Well, my, I mean, I, I, you know, like I, was a kid, I was a kid who loved to eat and, uh, my mom, you know, wasn't working at the time and she was a great, she was a great cook. My grandmother's a great cook. That's all been said before, but really that was, you know, it was an important, you know, I grew up in the South side of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which wasn't really the culinary destination of the ages and still isn't, um, even though we've gone through this um, kind of revolution of restaurants and food and chefs and everything. Uh, And I would say they were the first foodies, but they would hate that because there's a level of pretension to it. You would say who's the first foodies? My parents. Oh, that's awesome. You know, even though they weren't. And they, they, you know, uh, health food was a big, you know, a big thing in the seventies with my mom, you know, they just didn't want us to eat any crap. Right. You know, so that's why we had a garden. That's why we like reached, you know, there was always a search for like my dad's from Miami. So we were in Miami three, four times a year. And we would stop on the way there to stop at the one citrus place that didn't spray that had oh, the, best, awesome. the bad, you know, because that was really, really important to them, you know. And so they were talking to you about that stuff as a kid about pro, way before people were talking about how stuff is sourced in America. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, we went, you know, we went on Sunday, we would go to the, it was called the Grist Mill. And it was out in like Amish country, Ohio, uh, to get flour 
because it wasn't hydromated or brominated or, um, you know, bleached or any of the stuff they do to it. So, and again, they weren't hippies for sure. And they weren't foodies for sure because they hate that word. And it was just because they wanted good stuff. And right. that was, yeah, so that I mean, was, you know, that that's like, the, it's fascinating because of the way you cook, uh, right, Gabrielle Hamilton talks about, I mean, her mother was the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, your parents and her mother were different in other ways. Right. But that idea of like, you know, Gabby talks about um, the, the way her mother cared about get, putting produce that was fresh on the table when most people... Yeah, it, it it often starts at home, and I feel like the you know that kind of like home home life really breeds that um, natural way of kind of like identifying. Would with your food. friends come over, and could they tell like, oh, the food at your house is better? Uh, no, I think they like coming to our house because my parents would serve them wine and water, so they That's you great. know they were, they were Italians and and and, and Polacks, so they were. <laughs> They, that was like a natural progression because it was better than soda, actually, was how we grew up. Sure. And when did you realize you had a, a, a palate, though? Like that you... A palate? Yeah. Like when well, did you realize, like, oh, I actually, I have taste. And this well, kind of matters. It, it was how more, did that it, all it, happen? It, it was more the work that appealed to me. I mean, I was never going to college. That was never going to happen in the history of ever. Why? Uh, were you playing music then? I was playing a lot. Yeah, playing a lot of music. What kind um, of bands were you in? Um... I won't say anything. They were good, but they were damn fun. What uh, were they? What kind of music were you playing? Uh, you know, modern rock. Uh, I had a you know industrial metal band when I first met, uh, made, uh, moved to New York. Uh, I had uh, you know I loved everything really. Uh, I was either going to Burger School of Music to be a session musician in L.A. That was right. Like, I don't know why. That was one idea. That was one idea, or I was going to cook. Um, and in 1989, neither of those were like viable careers really. Yeah. No, I mean in studio musician that end. I mean, well, thank God that I mean, career. Yeah. I mean, I watch those documentaries about those guys all the time. I mean, I love those documentaries. Oh yeah, um, like Carol Kay and Tommy Tedesco. Yeah, my and all mind, that I, stuff. my mind, I was going to be like Wrecking Crew 2.0, like type of thing. Like right, uh, just because that I, that, yeah, that appealed to me. Yeah, it's an amazing. Uh, I don't know for someone who in the end has to lead. That's a hard life. Yeah, you know what I mean. To just come in for your three hours and hope you're getting double scale. Before you go to the next you session, know, I don't know if that would have really worked for that you. Worked for, hopefully, like maybe producer might have been more of my yeah. My well, thing, David Foster know? started playing sessions yeah. and then ended up becoming David Foster. But so you, but then the work of well, the actual physical work really kind of appealed to me as a as a task driven kind of thing, you know. And the I started doing it for money. I started working in restaurants for money when I was in high school, and then uh, I worked for my first real chef when I was seventeen, uh, who was a local guy that 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 got live lobsters and uh, had a farm locally that he bought, you know, like local ingredients from, which was like unheard of really back then, you know, to get lobsters flown in from Maine and to, you know, like no one was doing that. So that was really the first chef that I ever worked for that I was like, oh yeah, this is like, you can do this. And, you know, this is, this is maybe like a career. And, uh, but I was, I would work like crazy, but I love the, the work, the physical work part of it. Um, Cause it's a very physical job. Right. There's no, there's to to think otherwise that this is not a very blue collar work. At least the actual physical work of it. Yeah. yeah you um, mean the breaking down of animals. Breaking, the... Yeah. The breaking down of animals. The uh, cooking. You know, brunch for a thousand people, um, which is what happens at Lafayette on a Saturday. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's a. But the work was. I like the work physically. 
And um, there's nothing that makes me sadder than the idea of having to go out for brunch in New York City on a weekend. <laughs> like just the war, the brunch wars in New York. As a customer, as a customer, it's just. I mean, I'll only go to my friends' places. That's like a. I, I, yeah, because it's just because you could text someone and yeah, say. Yeah, I like, could just be like, "Hey, I'm coming," uh, because it's just a nightmare. Yeah, I'll, often, often it, I'll end up if if I go to brunch, if I'm in the city on the weekend, and if I if I am somewhere, <laughs> I'll usually go to my own place because I can just be. Yeah, like, you hey, could guys, actually. Just... I'm coming in. Please put me in the back. Like, yes, you can just deal with it. I cannot wait for my Ancestry box to come back. Uh, I have been wanting to see these results, and they're on their way back to me, I think, and I, I, I can't wait to see it. Look, we're all here. We're all living in the present. We all value that. But I'll tell you, there's a lot that you get by understanding where you come from and understanding your own history, the history of your family, the history of the world through the prism of who you and your ancestors are. And... Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. Connects you to the place in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestor journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. And look, to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Ancestry has combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person, like events that shaped them, how they made a living, and what they excelled in. Ancestry's unique features and record collections can give a more complete picture of people from your past, like the events that shaped them, how they made a living, even how long they attended school. It's so easy to get started. So get started. Go to Ancestry.com slash moment today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash moment for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash moment. So as you're talking about this stuff and how you weren't going to go to college, I've read in like three different interviews where you mentioned that you were hyperactive as a kid, Mm -hmm. that you're glad you didn't get medication. You had ADHD and you were Mm -hmm. glad you didn't get medication. So... I'm exactly the same, except I wish someone would have given me medication. So school, when I was bored with a the subject, there was nothing you could do to get me to read it. I had real ADHD. I sorted it out in my life and figured out I went to college. I went to fucking law school at night to prove to myself I could, which is, Oof. yeah, nothing you have to do. I graduated. But, but many times um, I thought about how much easier certain aspects of just like getting along and getting through life would have been if I could have focused on things that were harder to focus on. And I've, I mean, I've come to gotten to peace with it now at 52, but, um, but why are you, one, do you mean it when you say you're, you're glad you weren't medicated? And, and if you do, why would it, cause it must've been, cause here's the thing right now, we're both guys who've done fine in life, but when you're a kid, it's painful at times. So the the ADHD stuff can make life difficult because you you start to think you're lazy. You start to think, uh, I didn't think I was dumb, but I thought like, well, why can't I quite do these things? Why can't I read this history book? And uh, and you feel like failure sometimes. So why are you glad that wasn't fixed in some way? Or, or... Mean, In hindsight, sometimes I, I feel like the struggle was part of you know, that process made me in a way or made me approach work How? that way or 
approach people that way or the process was part of um, who I am, you know, and that's okay because it, the, the, I mean, any struggle is the way, you know, you get somewhere and you can, you're saying that even though it was painful it then you think finding your way through it, like forged you somehow. Yeah. Or like, you know, makes you a bit of a badass, or at least made me, a, yeah. you know, a bit of a badass or be able to like handle various situations or not handle various situations like actually, but yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess, uh, like, did you doubt yourself when you were, cause like sometimes people with who have that stuff, even though they know they're quick and they're capable, there's that other side of it, which is like, how come everybody else can do the geometry so easily? And I can't bother to learn the fucking theorems. I mean, and that's part of the reason probably why I ended up what I do, you know, is, you know, it's either going to be like a, a music thing or a food thing or a creativity thing. But there's, and what I was saying before is that there's the, this work kind of is a cure in a certain way for that, you know, type of issue. Uh, you know, I've said a million times, like, you know, uh, cooking, cooking saved a lot of lives for a lot of people. Uh, even though it's hard work, it's uh, there's a task oriented like thing there, whether it's, you know, I have to get this sauce done on time or, you know, I need to. It's and it, and it never really stops, really. So I think, you know, that's one of the reasons maybe why it appealed to me besides like making delicious things, besides like using cooking to um, almost like the, you know, discover the history of, you know, different, different areas, the, the anthropology of food, like, uh, you know, it, it was a way that I let you in. It was something you really were enthusiastic about. Right? Yeah. I just, and, I, I love to eat and I really wanted to know the process, you know, to get there. The same thing with music is that I, you know, I love listening to music, all different kinds of music. And I loved learning how it was made, who made it, what instruments they used, how it was recorded, you know, who the, you know, who the, who the audio engineer was. Uh, yeah, you know, the history behind it, like, it's kind of the same. Yeah, right. Like, um, when you said industrial metal, I immediately didn't just think of Trent and Atticus, I thought of John Fryer. The, you know what I mean? Which <laughs> yeah. I, like, I immediately was right there at John Fryer, who produced an engineer, as I know you know, because you like a lot of those records. Sure. And uh, so I'm the same like that with the music thing. I was a total... I still think if I could just take a bunch of the brain space where I know bass players' names, I could <laughs> accomplish so much more because honestly, nobody cares about who played bass in ACDC. Like, nobody, nobody. Nobody cares. But uh, I mean, I know it's Cliff Williams. Like, that's the problem. Um, and, uh, but so when you started, did you, when you started doing this 17, 18, 19, did you start to think, did it feel like a calling to you or just like, hey, I can do this? I'm pretty good at it. Were you good at it quickly? Uh, I was very good. Yeah, right away. I was very good at it. Um, and yeah, again, because I, I really, really, really liked the work. But it really wasn't until I came to the East Coast that I kind of like could understand that. Oh yeah, I could you know do this for a living. You mean that there was like and, a career to yeah, it? Yeah, there was a that, you know there was because there were no there were no chefs on TV. It was basically Gourmet Magazine. Yeah, the Galloping there Gourmet. Was, yeah, there that's was Galloping about it. Gourmet. Uh, Cooks Magazine just kind of came out, but there was no, you know, when I graduated from high school, you know, if I told someone I was going to go be a line cook in New York City, I might as well have said, I'm going into the military or I'm going to become a priest because those were more viable options really back then for a middle class, you know, amazing you know, how, guy in America, right. I think. And that, when I came into the city in 90, it was really the second wave of American line cook, really, because at that time, David Belay just got four stars from the New York Times, which is a huge deal. Uh, David Burke it was at River Cafe, and Charlie Palmer was at Oriol. And these Prudhomme, really, at, that was when Prudhomme had the restaurant on Broadway, right? Uh, yeah, on the West Side there. Yeah, and, for uh, a little period and of time. That was really the, the it was the first time 
that people were talking about American cuisine and American chefs and the idea that an American chef could get four stars from the New York Times, the highest rating, was a big deal. And there weren't a lot of, you know, my first job in the city, I was the only American in the, in the, in the kitchen. It was, all, it was all Italian. Which, where was that? San Domenico. Oh, sure. And there was, yeah, there was no, it was all Italian kids. Uh, you know, there was like seven of them crammed in an apartment in Queens, uh, you know, on, on Visa, and then me. So what was, was your job? Uh, I was the garmage. I was the salad guy. How'd you get the uh, job? Uh, Mario Cuomo's wife got me that job. Because how? How? Because I was, my first job when I came to the East Coast was I was Mario's personal chef. And so when I wanted to come to As a young man, you were yeah. Mario, like a 20-year-old or something? Yeah, 19 to 20, yeah. You were cooking for the governor. Yeah. Or the former governor. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that was my entryway into the New York world of gastronomy. And then she, uh, she hooked you up to get that job, and then you wanted to kill at that job, obviously. You yeah, I, just, I, well. I was here. I was, like, I was hooked. Once I was in the elite. And you, the pace of it worked for you? Oh, yeah. I was had no problem. I mean, 19 years old, you know, so I was... And then how did you go about becoming... Did you go to culinary school? I did, yeah. I went to culinary school. I know which you I staged in Italy and stuff. Yeah, I worked in Europe for a couple of years, and uh, I, went to, I went to cooking school. And did you start to have the ambition then that you wanted to, like, be a chef, not a co- only a cook, and that you wanted to have your own spots? Like, how did it... How did the, um, how did the ambition slash business part start mm-hmm. to surface for well, I you? Well, I think t- time... You know, is that is my my thing is that, you know, my original plan is I was going to come to Manhattan and I was going to work at a couple of restaurants, and then I was going to go to work, you know, Europe and work for a couple of chefs, and then naive me thought I would maybe travel through the Middle East and, you know, learn how to make couscous, and then you know travel through India and make doso with you know whoever, and then travel through you know China and Japan, and I you really took your way around the world. Basically. Really, I wanted to come back to New York. This like. 35-year-old, long-haired culinary sage that had done, like, everything, and then I would have found my food voice. That was, like, my, my original ambition. Uh, I got stuck in New York besides a couple, you know, years in Europe. Not bad. No, but <laughs> the voice, I talk about voice all the time. It's, like, the thing that separates, I guess, the mom and pop from, like, the, the sort of, you know, local, very important local restaurant that feeds you and feeds a community. Sure. From somebody who is able to... Create something original and powerful. And so early on, you were thinking about how to develop your own voice. Like, even if you thought of it in a way that was like um, maybe unrealistic or not the path that happened, you actually consciously had the idea, I better, th- I better create a prism through which I see this stuff somehow. I, mean, I, I looked at it through, through eating because I enjoyed so many different kind of foods besides just at that time, you were either a French chef and the French chefs looked down at the Italian chefs. And then after that, that was it. So especially in New York, you know, every restaurant that was worth anything was a, had an L-E in front of it or an L-A in front of it. And then there was a French <laughs> word or an Italian word, basically. Right. And the, but I also loved Mexican food. I saw, you know, as much as I was exposed to it then, I loved Thai food and I loved all these different things. So it was, I loved working for the great chefs, but I also loved this kind of international. Yes. I mean, know, I remember, so I remember I came to New York City in 88, mm-hmm. after college. So 88, 89, like that's when I came to New York City. I mean, I grew up in, an hour out of the city, but that's when I came sure. to the city. And like, I remember, you know, there was only Pong Sri if you wanted to go for Thai food on <laughs> sure. Broadway or whatever. And uh, the, there was like Chin Chin and Shun Li were the only 
and and I guess um, the pig thing uptown. There were very few places that were really doing Mr. K's, maybe very that were trying to do this other cuisine sure. well, and you guys didn't take it seriously. You know, the 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 food people didn't really <laughs> take those places very seriously, right? Yeah, well, there were, yeah, it was just a different idea, and there was a different idea. Well, it was a different idea about going out, and a different idea about you know what a night out at like a good restaurant was, or the, you know, it, but a lot of times, the, I mean, back in the day, in this. You know, in the 70s and early 80s, you didn't even know who the chef's name was. You knew who the maitre d' name was. You went to yes. Le Cirque. You went to Le Cirque because Cereal Macchiani right. was the maitre d'. You didn't go there because Daniel was or, there, or even well, Daniel was the first one to really get some press, right? Or like you know, make a name for himself or just kind of stick out. But before that, it was really the host or the you know the maitre d'. So it was a very very different time. Also, if you wanted to get, if you, that's really if, true. if you were you like, know what? that's really true. If, you know, if you were, you know, were a travel, you know, person at, you know, at that time and you say, you know what, I want, I don't know, porcini mushrooms or, you know, something that was a luxury yeah. item. There were only a handful of places to get it. Now you can, you know, the, the kid in Bushwick is doing it, you know, I'm doing it and Danielle is doing it's it. It's interesting. The, 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 um, Daniel Hum's doing it too. The, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, but, uh, it's interesting when I, I, I think about, like, back then, there were French chefs. You know, like, Roger Verger was famous then. Sure. Even though he was – but he was in France. And I'm trying to think about who the equivalent of that would be in New York then, and it's hard to think of. Like, Paul Prudhomme, because he was on television, I guess. And he wasn't even here, probably, right? He was still in New Orleans, I guess. When yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what his arrangement was. I'm sure that he was <laughs> hardly here. Um, so you're, you're cooking and, and, and starting to develop this idea about food. Were you also learning the business then? consciously or did you just assimilate like did you just of course there's different levels of working um but it has to it has to work somehow which is really important for me when i've been in business for myself the very very first time it had to be my own money so you saved your own money before you opened your first restaurant so the was it my second restaurant technically because laconda opened first right. um even though that was even though that was you well know, you had partners in laconda it, yeah. it was our own our own money also but you know when we get into the dutch we're just no, going to be yours alone, no yeah. partners. Well, this I have is my, my business. Two, my two operating partners, uh, Josh and Josh and Luke, that we do everything together. But we finance it ourselves, um, you know. And we why? Um, you know, you're not, you know, the cliche. You're not supposed to put your own money in the show. But it was really a point of of contention and of like, well, fuck, we're going to do this. We have to put it all on the line to believe in it. We have to, we're going to make it work. We're going to like finish the construction ourselves. We're going to do like everything ourselves. You know, that's like four million bucks to open up a restaurant in Soho, uh, and and it's a big restaurant. Yeah, it's a big restaurant, and it's still going strong eight, eight, eight years later, better than ever. But we we financed it ourselves, and that was the business part and getting that right was that's really important to me. Besides the food, I've, you know, obviously I'm going to think about forever the food part, and we're going to geek out about every part of the experience, whatever experience we're trying to do. But to really make the business work was important. And you – how nervous were you when that thing was opening then? Oh, I, I mean, it was yeah. – you were very famous then I in New York. And in the New York restaurant world, like, the press was insane. I remember the whole thing. I went definitely in the first two weeks. And – but I don't think I realized that you'd basically, like, done what, what Dave had done with Sam, which is you just went, like, I'm doing this myself. Yeah, we put it all – we put it all on the line, Crazy. like, like, like we put it on the line. Because, like, let's, you know – it's big money for it's Any, big money I mean, for anybody. Yeah. But we made it work and it was great. It was a huge success. Did you know right away that it was working? Like after the first couple of weeks were you like 
able to exhale? No, it took us like three, four, three months maybe to really like make sure it works. Uh, I, I want to go backwards. Sorry, we skipped ahead because I want to talk about the t- your time with Daniel because Daniel's sure. someone who fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's just so good at what he does and also such an elegant guy. And yeah, he's the best. When, when yeah, I was with him the other night. Every time I'm with him, first of all, I can't believe he's only like 11 years older than I am because he feels like he's been famous in New York for ever and ever. He and also ever. like he's like like Jean Georges, another famous yeah. French chef here in New York. Is is he never he doesn't age? It's which amazing. Is like, which is I don't know. The whole thing is just incredible yeah, to know, me. I don't know what it is. It's all amazing, but um, because he's so kind. I mean, he's just able to sort of like take a minute and recognize everybody and deal with them and. Um, but when so for people who don't know, I mean Daniel Blood is arguably the most important chef of the last however many years and a certain kind of food. But more than that, he's like a godfather to a lot of many chefs who come up. Under, sure, as your godfather to a bunch of people, which I want to ask you about later. But um, what did it feel like to you, and how did it happen that Daniel said, "Here, I want to entrust you with this second restaurant," and and it became, you know, the showcase restaurant in, and there's always been Danielle, but Cafe Balud became um, really the center of the Upper East Side dining experience for a long time. Um, there are people who are regulars that started when you were there, still, you know, go there until the day they die. Sure. Uh, and uh, and the food was just as, as good as uh, it could be, and you had a just all-star bench of cooks working for you. Talk a little bit about how that happened, and also, if you can... Uh, how you made an impression on Daniel when you were working for him and how you thought about that and then what it felt like when he conferred this upon hmm. you. Well, it's a, it's a funny story because he the he was about to open up Danielle and move, move Danielle. Um, so basically he was closing down his original location and then moving it to a much bigger location. Uh, at the time, I was uh, executive sue at Le Cirque at the time. Uh, so you were working under him at, Le, at no, oh no no you were no, at Le Cirque I was at Le, when he was at the original Danielle yeah so I was, I was working at Le Cirque um, and I was you know I, I was an American guy who was the executive sous chef at this huge French restaurant and that's kind of where he came to like know me a little bit and uh, actually the real story is is that in 1989 I tried to stage with Danielle oh I uh, love that when he was the chef at Le Cirque which is really the height of 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 that and that impact on the cultural New York also. And I tried to stage with him and he kept on hanging up the phone every time I called to make, uh, to arrange kind of like a, a you know, an interview? A, an interview with him or work in the kitchen. What for do you mean you would bit. hang up? Three times he hung up on me. You called, would, hi, my name is Andrew. I yeah, wanna... he's like, it would be like, it would be like, hang up, hang up. That was, you know, when, you know, getting a job at one of those restaurants was a really big deal because there weren't a lot of them and there weren't a lot of chefs that were doing <laughs> sure. that. Sure. Anyways, fast forward to all the different years. And so he, uh, he approached me, actually, to be the chef there at that restaurant, um, which... At Cafe. At Cafe. And so it was, uh, uh, which is something you really, it was very specific. You know, there was really no other choice. He wanted an American chef de cuisine at this restaurant because he was taking his very French crew at that time to go to Restaurant Danielle. And he set up a meeting um, through some of the works for him now, and it's basically like, I'd like to, you know, I want an American... He set up a meeting with you because he'd come in... Had you cooked for him? Yeah, I cooked him for at, a couple of times. At, at Le Cirque? At Le where, Cirque. And, and he knew it was you? You made it a point? Did you go out to the table? No, like, he... How did he, he know he, it was well, you cooking for him? Uh, he would come in the kitchen and, you know, because he's, he's like, he's... Uh, everyone knows who he is, and he's kind of a, you know, he's a godfather of New York cooking, and he just, you know, he just walks in the kitchen and says hello to everybody. And, uh, but he, he figured that... 
and which is interesting when you say about the business part, because besides the cooking, again, the physical cooking and the love of what you're doing and putting things on the plate, he figured that if I can run a monster like Le Cirque was at the time with all the crazy people and all the crazy things that was going on there, that I could probably handle his little restaurant uh, on 76th Street. And, you know, obviously, like, I could cook, and he knew I could cook. But it was, I think, my ability at the time to be able to handle the operational part, which is something that appealed to him, besides just someone that only wanted to, you know, showcase his food on the plate. How much freedom did you have coming up with the menu? Well, in the beginning, we opened up. It was, you know, we he was very, very involved in there all the time. But once Restaurant Danielle opened... Uh, he was just too busy to to really pay attention, you know. So and that's when and, it really became your restaurant. Yeah, and and for you know for better or worse, you know, in the end, like I, I I wanted to be a great chef, and I wanted for you know I was proud to work for Danielle um, at the time. It was a big deal for him to have an American chef de cuisine kind of running his place, and um, there was a lot of you know a lot of expectation on me to like execute. So my my big my big goal, I didn't want to I didn't want to talk to the press. I didn't want to write a cookbook. I didn't want to be on TV. Um, it was, you made that decision consciously. It was just it was just not something I wanted to do. I wanted to like really make great food, and that was kind of the end of it. That was the ambition, really, at that point. Did you feel tremendous pressure uh, to execute? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Did you feel a lot of pressure to execute? Yeah, because it's the most demanding uh, for for people who aren't here. Like where that restaurant's located, um, Madison Avenue and 76th Street, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Is Sort of like the, I mean, not sort of, the most demanding human beings in the world live within 15 <laughs> blocks of that's that a, restaurant. That's a nice way of putting it. And they're um, also, but also the, the most amazing restaurant customers and loyal yes, restaurant customers. Yes, if you get them, yeah. they're yours forever. Yeah. But getting them is hard. Yeah. Getting them and keeping them in the beginning is hard. Sure. Because also every one of them wants to think that you know why they're special, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the art, really. Of New- yeah, that's part of the art in New- in New York. But that but the 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 Upper East Side for all you know any any like negativity it gets whatever restaurant customers are the they're the most loyal following you could ever have in New York. It's not a one it's not a one and done Instagram culture and still listen to this day. Uh, you're gonna have and a lot of them went right and followed you downtown too, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, some of those same people yeah are still. Eating in your restaurant. Yeah, they're having you know they'll have dinner uptown and then lunch downtown and, did, and vice versa. Did uh, did it feel different to you having that spotlight on you? Because I imagine before that, even when you were at Le Cirque, Le Cirque had been an established place for a long sure. time. Cafe Balloud was really all very quickly. What a year in, it was all about you, and you started getting written about. You got these incredible three stars. Mm-hmm. You got. Um, this regular clientele, fancy, important people come in. I mean, Bill Goldman told me that he went back and introduced himself to you <laughs> once, right? Yeah, yeah. And Bill. So, well, I know you yeah. took care of him a million times. Yeah. He took me there a lot. I went to there with him a lot. Oh, but, okay. Um, uh, I wasn't a dear friend of his or anything, but he was very nice to me and mm-hmm. took me probably 10 times to Cafe Blue. And, and, and that there's, there's a perfect example of one of the great like New York City restaurant customers. Wait, I've talked to yes. Besides like an amazing guy and a very generous guy and uh, an amazing writer, like uh, that's, again, the ideal. Yes, he's the ideal. Yeah. Platonic ideal of a customer yeah. for sure because an enthusiast. I mean, he just – he would open the menu at Cafe Blue and he'd say, let me tell you what's wonderful here. And he would do like a lot of your job for the oh, yeah. for the people he was at the table with, and it was just an incredible experience to go with him. 
but but the question I want to ask you is, how did you handle the pressure? Uh, how did you handle the sort of attention on yourself when you've said how much times you weren't looking for that? Mm -hmm. That was, you know, another pivot moment kind of like in my, in my career and what I was doing, you know, the, uh, and I think that kind of also forced me because, you know, Danielle trusted me, uh, and I was kind of doing what I was doing and there were, there were no complaints on food and there was no complaints with the numbers and everything was kind of working that I got to, you know, express myself because there was this, Besides executing, people wanted to see, you know, they wanted stuff. So we had, we had, uh, you know, wanted stuff, meaning they wanted to see, you know, what, what I was doing this week or, you know, it's springtime, well, so what's going on. Right. And, yeah. So how did that. And we had, we had, we had, we had incredible customers there. You know, they would, they would, they would often challenge me just for, just for fun. And I, we loved it, which would be, you know, I'm coming on Thursday. I want to eat, you know, can you just do, can you do a tasting menu for us that's only German? Right. And we would stay like half the night only preparing like sp german special and you and, liked that oh yeah we loved it you know and we would you know we 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 could get any any tasting menu you wanted we had a, my, my philosophy at the time was we wanted it to be noah's ark where we had two of everything in the restaurant at any time so and then at that time you know and, and these things happen That's just incredible these things happen over time where you know you develop relationships with hunters and farmers and 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 fishermen where you're getting stuff that no one else is getting so we had hundreds that would show up with doves and would show up with you know like really it's things that no one else would get and so as a as a chef it was uh yeah it, it was it was fun it was it was it, and we pushed ourselves to the limit all the time because it was fun uh and we were executing on a high level yes here we got to hold on for one second but my my daughter's got a, having a had an allergic reaction. She's okay, but oh, oh. all I got is give me an update on Anna. She's fine. But instead, what he wrote to me was, "Tell Carmelini I make his ricotta like every day for breakfast." <laughs> he does that whipped. That is amazing. <laughs> That's why I was like, "What? Why is he calling? He knows I'm in a podcast." <laughs> Literally, <laughs> to to give you a compliment. Okay, so. Um, So part of the thing that happened there was, I think, uh, Daniel's like generosity in a way, mm -hmm. which allowed you to, because many chefs wouldn't want to highlight the person doing that cooking. They would, I mean, I see it now all the time where people want it, they really go out of their way to make it seem like they're doing all of it. What did that teach you? Or did you take anything from that? Well, 100%. You know, now I have... I have 13 different chef de cuisines at, at at my at my restaurants, and you know I was the sh I was the the chef for a very well known chef for a very you know a very long time seven years that's that's a long time in in the chef world to do that, and I have really good I feel I have really good relations with with all of them, uh, and it taught me a way to kind of deal with that and kind of understand both sides of the coin really. You know, it's like as a and it's, for example, it's you know it's starting to be springtime here in New York, so we're going through all their different spring menus at all the restaurants. You know, that's what I was doing today, and that's a process. You know, that's a process of uh, I'm not going to be there, even though I can cut the sea bass. Yes, really well. I'm not the guy yeah. that's going to be cutting the sea bass every single day. So um, it's about keeping the restaurant on the same track and yes. making sure it doesn't you know deviate from its original like idea but also you know being able to let my chefs you know create with kind of in that box and some of my chefs we've made partners and that are that's amazing know, yeah and they're full-on they're full-on like true partners 
um, operating partners that you know I don't micromanage them you know so much because they're doing their thing. And I know they're great. Yeah, I know they're great chefs, and they they benefit economically, and they do a great job, and it says it on the menu, and that's and that's, that's awesome. That's right. kind of what it should be about because it's true. Like after you know, even after the second store. It's a big thing if you you know if you're a chef you have to understand that you're not that you're not that guy that or girl that you were before, you're not the person that's there you know six days a week that's like finishing every plate. It's not chef's table anymore. It can't be it's right. Just, it's just not. That's a fantasy. Is it hard to let go of that though? Because your restaurants are so personal to it's, you in a way. It's, it's only recently. When I mean recently, I mean in the last like year or two that I I think I felt I've let go hundred percent. Because it's, yeah, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And part of my, I won't say downfall, but, you know, some mistakes I've made along the way or because I maybe have never let go enough of certain things or just emotionally, like, detaching yourself from every service, from every review, from every, and you And so you've know, learned to? And, yeah, it's, it's well, a little. I give, I've given up some. And not that it's, like, being over-controlling, you know, but just being well, able to, like... it's still your restaurant. It's, it's all, it's just kind of detaching yourself like a little bit, you know, and not realizing that some things are not under your control. When you look around the city now, like I, I, I sometimes think about that Cafe Balloon kitchen and, you know, that you had Rich and Mario and Dave mm-hmm. in the kitchen at the same time and other people too. Was Calicchio there too or no? He was already, no, he was, gone, he was yeah. not, he was gone then. But it was at the same time, Rich and Mario and Dave, Rich, Teresi, Mario Carbone, Dave Chang, three of the most important chefs certainly in New York or in the country in a sure. certain way, under, training under you. Does it, how do you, I mean, when you walk into one of their joints, how does it make you feel? Do you have a sense of pride about it? Do, was it? Was it fun to have all those guys? Was it having that much sort of alpha energy in a room? Was it hard? Well, how was it hard for you to kind of like well, it's get your arms around all that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, that Dave didn't work for us for too long because uh, he hated it. And he was saying uh, it's part of his whole story. And he and then I mean, uh, it, and he and it was like a, a, a turning point for him also, uh, you know, kind of like uh, why he did what he did and uh, how he kind of pivoted out of uh, cafe and that kind of environment. Uh, Rich worked for me for seven, eight years. Uh, Mario worked for me for three years. And, uh, you know, those uh, I remember the first day they walked into Cafe Blue as students from cooking school. Yeah. How uh, did and, you recognize that and, these people were worth having around? Yeah. Uh, you know, they were they were both Italian American, so like I immediately, you know, they came from the same background as me, uh, both you know, social, economically, and kind of like their you know their makeup. So they were very very similar, and you know they, uh, I, I don't know, I could we could tell a million stories probably, but they they're they're they're, they're uh, you know rich especially uh, he he one hundred percent was diving into cuisine. That's what I'm stronger, curious about is could you recognize stronger they have the stuff that like if I'm like did you feel a certain obligation like we got to fucking make it great and also I'm going to teach you how to do this right. Well, I mean they 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 saw me probably at my best and my worst to achieve what we were, you know, what I wanted to like, you know, what I wanted to get at and but you know it's interesting that the you know you know Rich Mario and Dave that you know for have gone on to what we do and it's it's been it's been awesome to see it's it's interesting to see all the the the, the people that didn't really you know do something what's the and, difference uh, do you think? and and it's uh you know part of it has to do with and the same thing with me it's too it's like yeah. part of it do is like uh part of it has to do with circumstance part of it has to do with luck part of it has to do with uh you know money actually a lot of it has to do with money to be honest with you um it is all timing um you know nailing it correctly and the individual person you know 
Wait, do you think a lot of your success has to do with luck and and timing? I mean, it seems to me like you just, like some of it, because we're... Well, yeah, maybe like raw persistence is like part of it. Because isn't, yeah, that's what I was like, what about just like... Still here, you know, type of thing. Like, we're still doing it where everyone else like, you know, burn out or like destroyed it in another way. No, because I mean, luck and timing certainly play a part in all of it. And and like you said, you know, the the fact, um, uh, I always say this in my own career, the fact that I was like a white dude in a business that was a lot of the guys hiring were like white dudes. I could talk about sports. It made certain conversations go sure. much more easily than it would have for a person of color or a woman even when I started um, in it. So yes, I get that that piece of it. But when I spend time with Rich, Mario, or Dave, the hunger, which even just in a half hour with you, the sort of like, there's a will that all four, like, I, I you know... Um, as different as you all may be, there is a will that all four of you guys have, I think. Does, do you that, recognize that, that at all? Yeah, no, that, that that's interesting. I think that all of us, even more than me, like Rich definitely had the the will. And there was like, you know, we used to joke about it with Rich because he, here's, a, here's, a, here's, a, here's, and you can't even, you can't even do this anymore, but here's someone who would show up at work, okay, after working for me like three or four years and be working a station and ask for as much work as possible to be able to prove it mostly to himself, but to prove it to everybody else that he could be better or he could actually execute. I love that. And That's so, like Matt Damon in the in Goodwill Hunting with the wrench. Oh you yeah. Know why? Because fuck you. Yeah, just yeah. just to be able to say just to be able I to say it. we did it, or just to be able to say that he could he could handle the challenge, whatever it is. And we'd come in and saying like, AC, what are we gonna do for a special today? And then you know, and after like four years, there was nothing left to do. You know, we have we we have done we had we had done everything. We had we had explored every plant and every animal and every combination possible, but he still wanted more. So that's interesting you say that there's there's a will there yeah what so when, when you look at at all the stuff that you've um accomplished is what do you hope that your legacy is here uh, do you think about things like legacy i do not i do not think about legacy um it's not um you know i don't i don't have kids kind of on purpose uh just because i uh i don't know i just uh I have a hard time taking care of myself. I'm married. I love my wife. We're all going. She's going to be 20, 20 years next month. Awesome. So, yeah. um, but it's, uh, I, so I never really thought about legacy or kind of like, you know, of that. Um, probably the same, probably the same reason I, you know, I didn't think about cookbooks or TV or promote self promotion that right. way. You finally um, did a couple of cookbooks, but because like people yeah. just kept asking. So it was like, I'm well, I also it. had something to say at the time, which I think is, I think was important for me is that there was actually a purpose of, in doing it as opposed to just advertising. Uh, yes. There had to yes, be, I get the distinction. There had to yeah. be like a, for me like a reason to do it, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't really think about 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 legacy. Um, do you, I don't know if it's something I should do as an adult to start thinking about that. If that's the, but uh, it's not really. I I don't think about it because I'm not even close to being finished. Yet. Right. So you don't think about oh, the way in which you've changed, like you know. The way in which you've changed, uh, La Conda Verde changed the way people thought about certain parts of, mm-hmm. like the the fact that you know kids on the you know some kids cooking your ricotta every mm-hmm. uh, every morning. Well, that, yeah, no, that's that's a, that's amazing. You like know that that kind of idea. Yeah. Um, uh, do you still love doing it, man? Do you still get off on putting on the whites if you end up in one of your restaurants and there's a reason for you to get get on the line or to um, stand there and and um, you know get food out does it still that's really <clears throat> that's really the, the thing i try to focus on still is that to make sure that that's 
again, remembering why I got into it in the first place. Do you expedite ever? It's, do you ever do it still? Oh, yeah. No, I do it a lot. And, and you know, the openings, we, when we open a restaurant, we open up a property, you know, I'm, you know, we just opened up in Detroit. Um, and I lived in Detroit for a month um, because that's what it takes. Like, uh, And I have an amazing team around me, and it, it would probably open without me. No, uh, you but know, you still want to get in there and do it. But it's 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 the, the – yeah, it's, it's a very human business, like, you know, we said before, and like it or not. And it's – you have to – lead the team in a certain way and you have to be there a certain way. So for better or worse, yeah, I will expedite. I 100% will expedite and I will work pasta station. Uh, Cause I still, I like, I don't do it every night. Um, but I try to make myself get in there and do it all the time. A, because slightly fearful that I'll lose it. You know, there's, um, yes, it's like, uh, you know, a guitar player or like any kind of musician think they're going to like lose their chops a little bit. Uh, I always think of myself as the best line cook in New York. Uh, but you know, I guess I'm, I'm, 47, I'm 47 now, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, but I still can, I can, yeah, hundred percent. I still love it. Um, but that's the, I actually ran into a chef on the street, um, the other day and I was a little bit sad because he was really, really down. Uh, he's like, and he's, he's a guy that people know. And, um, uh, and I said, yeah, man, he said, forget about all the other stuff. Forget about, you know. Forget about any HR issues you might have. Forget about, you know, what, you know, TripAdvisor said about your restaurant yesterday or, you know, what the, you know, what the critic you don't know wrote about it. I said, just concentrate on the thing that it's an Artie Bucco moment. Right. There's, there's a great scene in Sopranos with Artie Bucco and involves him with a rabbit and uh, it, 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 him going back to kind of like what he loved to do and, and, I tell you, you, you focus on that and focus on your core product, and that's where you're going to keep your soul. You just said the legacy, which is uh, Andrew Carmelini, the best line cook in New York. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a really good thing, man. Uh, hey, Andrew Carmelini, thank you so much. You're on Twitter. People can find you on Twitter. Uh, you know what? I 86 Twitter. So where are can Instagram? I'm on Instagram, yeah. As, as what name? Just, uh, Andrew Carmelini. Andrew Carmelini on Twitter. Go to his I – mean, on Instagram – Go to his restaurants. Maybe he'll be on the pasta station. Even <laughs> if he's not, he's made sure to train the, the woman or man making your pasta, so it'll be great. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, or um, you can email me at the moment, BK, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.